Uh, the lesson today is the last chapter in Romans, and I've entitled it, Saying Goodbye. Now, the next three Sundays, we're not going to meet as a class. This message has nothing to do with the fact that all three of those are not going to meet. Next uh, Sunday um, is the church, all church Christmas brunch during the Sunday school hour. And everybody is encouraged to be here during this time to meet with other people in the fellowship hall and on the premises uh, for that time of community building. So we're not going to meet. I think most of the other Sunday school classes are not meeting either. Then the next two Sundays, the next one is uh, Christmas Eve, and there'll only be one worship service on that day. And then the next Sunday, as always happens, an exact week later, is New Year's Eve. There's only one worship service then. So we will meet again next year. <laughs> and we'll be starting a new series. We're going to go back uh, into the Old Testament for a while and uh, look at... Uh, 2 Samuel, and I've got one particular lesson I want to give, and I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but you'll know when it takes place. So that's kind of looking ahead as we draw a conclusion to our time in studying uh, the book of Romans. And this 16th chapter is uh, a very unusual chapter compared to everything else that Paul has been saying and doing up to this point. So we're going to get into that, and we'll start right now. Let's ask the Lord to guide us as we come to him in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the freedom to come and worship you and not be afraid. We acknowledge this is an unusual state of affairs compared to what our brothers and sisters around the world encounter. And we lift them up to you today in our prayers that you comfort and guide and strengthen Christians throughout this world, that we will be faithful as brothers and sisters, eagerly awaiting your return as this Advent season reminds us so vividly. We do pray for peace, Lord God, not only in the wars that are waging and some about to begin but we pray for peace within the hearts of men and women and children. That where there is fear, you will drive that out and replace it with the peace that only you can provide. We pray, Lord, that your church will continue to grow even under difficult circumstances and Jesus Christ will be honored. And we do pray, Lord, that we will soon see you face to face as you return to make all things right. This is our prayer asking your guidance as we look at this part of your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Romans 16, saying goodbye. Now, if you've got your Bibles and you're looking at chapter 16, you're going to realize something a little unusual at the very beginning. Those first 16 verses are a long list of names that Paul is calling out as he ends this letter, people that he knows and he knows well. And I hope it'll be to your relief to know that I'm not going to read all those names out loud. It's, it's just like going through a telephone book. But as you look at them, you'll begin to realize these were people who were very important to Paul. He just starts out in the first verse, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrae, and that you welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, 
and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. I think it's significant that in the early church, the very first person Paul acknowledges here is a woman. Once again, going back to understanding in the Gospels with the 12 disciples and following Jesus around, but it was a group of women, remember, who from their own means helped support Jesus in his ministry. They were the bankers, in a sense, to enable him to do what he did. It was the women who were there at the crucifixion and who came back not knowing that he had come back alive from the dead, but were the first to encounter Christ, the first to bring word to the disciples that Christ is alive. And now as Paul makes this goodbye list, at the conclusion of his letter, there are prominent women throughout these names. They were an integral part of the church, and you can see in the way he directed his comments about Phoebe, they were very important. Now, Paul is saying goodbye to the people he truly cares about. And though it's just a letter, there's much in this chapter, particularly this second section, that informs us of what is involved in saying goodbye. And it's a, it's a, a technique, it's a lesson that we all can learn something from Paul in this. It may be just a letter, but there were lots of connections in the early Christian church. And he, Paul speaks of these people as though he knows them well. And the fact that he has not been to Rome, as far as we can tell, and he says he wants to go and see them, means that he has seen these people somewhere else on his journeys. And for whatever reason, they are now in Rome. And as you look at the book of Acts, you'll realize that this is really a very mobile culture. And it was not unusual for people to be moving around from Rome to other places if they'd been kicked out or moving from other places into Rome, particularly, I'm suspicious, if they were Christians who knew there were other Christians there and were going to go get the gospel with them as well. So whatever has been the dynamic, these are people that Paul knows well. And though it's just a letter, there are lots of emotional connections between him and this list of 29 people that he sends his greeting to. And some of them have identifying uh, qualifiers about how they were important to him. There's a depth of feeling here at the very end of some very serious teaching. We, we have looked at some, some very convoluted to us theology about Jews and Gentiles, about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, about how God is working among his people and what it means to be called of God, what it means to be in covenant with God, what God requires of those, even if they don't acknowledge him, what happens to them. All of this has been taking place. And there have been divisions in the church. We've seen Paul address that over different issues. So it's not totally at peace, but they are growing. And these are what I would call growing pains in the early church. But there's a depth of feeling here for all of these individuals. And Paul mentions them by name at the conclusion of his letter. Now, in closing, Paul emphasizes what is most important. This is to be expected. If you know you're saying goodbye and you've been trying to teach someone something over a period of time, or in his case, in this letter, there comes a time when you're going to need to be able to say goodbye and you want to say, re-emphasize what is most important. 
what has been shared in that relationship and things that you have tried to help them with and your indebtedness to them, as Paul expresses in those first 16 verses, uh, as the relationship uh, comes to a close. He starts off by saying there are certain people to avoid in the church. Now, of all the things that he could mention, this one surprises me. It's very pedestrian. It's just very matter-of-fact. It's just, it's not highly theological, but it's talking about divisions within the church. Let me read this, verses 17 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearers of the name. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Certain people to avoid. Of all the things he could say, this is the first in connection with that church. And it's not about what he's previously talked about in terms of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and what can you eat and what days you observe and all of that. But it's about division within the church from people that are already associating with the church. There are certain people to avoid, and as Paul describes it, he acknowledges the fact they are in the church, yes, but they're in it for personal gain. And I'm sure you've never known anybody like that. It does happen in even the best of churches. But here is a group of people who have come in, and they are going through all the, the motions and all the actions to make other people think they belong there, and they're part of this group, but they are a divisive group of people, and they're to be avoided. They have wrong teaching, according to Paul. They are deceptive, and he is the first to admit they're very persuasive. They're very good in what they do in trying to lure the people in the church into their way of thinking and their way of doing things. And he says, actually, the, their God, in the Greek, it's, their God is their belly. They are, they are enslaved to their own appetites and they're simply using the church to further their own good. Now, I'm sure, again, no names will come to your mind in our technological age of megachurches and things we have seen happen with leaders in the church. But Paul says this is going to happen. First of all, don't be surprised, but secondly, it's got to be dealt with. They are divisive, there is wrong teaching, there is deception, they are persuasive, and they are self-centered. And they're in the church. And what does Paul say? Avoid them. I mean, he is not cautious about saying, you know, as you love them, seek to do this. He says, avoid them, because they will take a huge toll in the peace and the purity of the church, if you don't. And then he goes on to talk about their own attitudes 
And I love this phrase. It really rang a bell, and I hope it did in your mind, where he says to them, I want you to be wise. This is verse 19. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now, that should ring a bell. Because we go back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 19, the words of Jesus to his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, there's a huge difference between being innocent and being naive. And Paul actually uses that word, naive. He wants them to be very aware of what's going on. And he wants them to be innocent of any wrongdoing on their part. To be naive is you don't even realize there's something wrong. You're just totally blind to it. You're going to get taken in because you don't realize there's anything that's dangerous. For somebody who is innocent, they are not naive. They know the dangers. They know what's involved in this. And Paul is saying, I want you to be very innocent in these things and very wise about what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false. Loving one another and keeping the church pure. Loving one another and keeping the church pure. And Paul states in this concluding paragraph, if we do that, what happens? God crushes Satan. I love that verb. I love that verb. It is not just defeats. It is not just overcomes. God crushes Satan. When in his church, God's church, the church of Jesus Christ, there is great love among the members, but there is also purity. And those who will not live according to what Scripture says a follower of Christ should live must either be dealt with or avoided. But they cannot be pretending to be something in the midst and you go along with it. That's what Paul is stressing as he brings this whole thing to a close. Now, as we look ahead, next thing, we come across a little pause in this advice that he's giving in bringing this friendship uh, to a close in the letter, the relationship with these people. But we now see in verses 21 through 23, some you may have 24, it's some text that just says uh, another thing about uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Don't worry about that. After saying these warnings to the people, then in verse 21 he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now, these are not only prominent individuals. The most important thing is, Paul is not alone. He can end this letter to the Romans, and he can conclude, in a sense, that part of the relationship. He hopes to see him, but he doesn't really know if he can or not. But he is not alone. And that's crucial. We'll get to that in a minute. And it also lets us know that in the letter writing, it's not actually Paul doing the writing. He's, he's got a scribe there. As Paul dictates this, he's writing it all down. In some other letters, Paul actually says, this is actually from my hand, and he signs it with his handwriting. It leads a lot of us to speculate, why was this? 
And the speculation, and this is truly speculation, but I think it kind of makes sense, that when Paul, Saul, first met Christ, it was by a blinding light. He could not see. And when he was healed, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. But you wonder if he didn't have a little eye trouble after that. Because in all the letters he's described that, that he, he was in great need of help and they took him in. We don't know what that was. He talked about a thorn in his side to keep him humble. We really don't know what that was. But we do know that there are others who wrote letters for him, which seems to indicate that his eyesight might not have been as good as it might should be. That's just an aside. But he is not alone. That's what I want to stress. As he's addressed all these people in Rome, he's told them what to avoid. These are my closing words to you. This is my advice to you. This is what you need to be aware of. And by the way, these are the people who are with me as I write the letter, as I dictate the letter. He's not alone. Eight people are listed or with Paul. So that's with 29 that he greeted. It's a bunch of folks he knows by name. The Christian church is exploding. It is exploding. We tend to think as we just read in the Acts of these different places Paul has gone to, but they are all carrying the gospel to other places where they go. It's like a spark flying out from a fire and hitting dry grass and another fire has started. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is infiltrating the whole Roman Empire and beyond that. So this is uh, an indicator of who all is involved in it. And then Paul says that we, followers of Christ, are strengthened through the preaching of the gospel and the hearing of the gospel. The way he phrases it is very interesting. You're not sure what the modifiers are, but to me, I think it's really true that when we hear the gospel again, even though we already know it, it strengthens us. To be reminded of what Christ has done for us, we can never hear that too much. An old gospel tune. It's not the one I'm going to read to you. Remember, tell me the old, old story. There is something strengthening about hearing this message we're familiar with over and over and over. But also there's something very strengthening about proclaiming that message to other people as we affirm who Jesus Christ is and as we share him with someone who does not know him, it is strengthening to us. Now we don't do that to make ourselves strong. But as we witness for Christ, as we keep that in mind in all that we do and say, then we are going to be strengthened in the gospel as well. Not only hearing it, but proclaiming it to other people. Hearing and telling. And then Paul goes on to say what uh, is really profound in my mind and how it makes us come across as a very unique group of people in history. Because he says, we know now what the Old Testament prophets didn't know. They prophesied about the coming Savior. They talked about all sorts of things that were going to be involved in his life, and we have seen those fulfilled in Christ, but they did not know who it was going to be. They just trusted God that he was going to bring a Redeemer, a Savior to them, and now we know who that is, and we know how he did it. So how now has been disclosed and throughout the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the man of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And don't let that escape you either. To all nations. Paul is aware already that the gospel is spreading out way beyond what he has done. It's going down into Africa. It's going over into Asia. It's going up into Europe. It is spreading 
fast to all nations the gospel is being proclaimed in, and this in the very early years of the church. I'm beginning to realize there were a lot more Christians around in those early years than I imagined. And it shouldn't surprise us. We don't have a lot of writings about it. We don't have a lot of tangible evidence. But as we begin to pick up evidence later in the history of Rome, we find out there are Christians in every place. Every place. And of course, the Roman Empire, when it became legal to be a Christian, then things really took off and also brought a lot of problems with the state-sponsored religion too. But that's another lesson another time. The gospel has gone out to all nations, and we now know what the Old Testament prophets longed to look into. The angels longed to look into and couldn't. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And then the last thing he says is all of this, everything that I've been telling you, all of this for Christian believers is to bring them to an obedience in faith. Not just a knowledge of the faith, but an obedience to the faith to form our lives and our minds around Jesus Christ and what that means to us in our day-to-day -day living. Now, what lessons are for us in how to say goodbye? We, we've talked about things that he's emphasized, and they're all good for us to remember as well as for the Romans to hear. But there are three things, I think, that really stand out as we come to this conclusion of what Paul is doing in drawing this relationship via letter to a close. First of all, to acknowledge the other people's importance to you. That's what those 29 names are about, I'm convinced. These are people who were important to Paul, who had made a difference in his life, and he'd made a difference in their life, and he is acknowledging that to them. You are special to me. I send you my greetings. I send you my warm greetings. Remain faithful to the truth of the gospel. Acknowledge their importance to you. You've been significant in my life. There's no way you can realize what you've done for me, but you've done so much. Thank you for how you've influenced my life. And then secondly, we are to remind the people that we're departing from of the important truths of life. To encourage them and to give them advice as we part I want you to remember this and this and this. Certainly one of those would be that you're always going to be in my mind and my heart. But there could be other particular things that you and that person have shared over the years and you want to remind them I have been in the battle with you and I continue to be in the battle by praying for you and I want you to remember these things. This is what's most important in our life together, and in your life going on with Jesus Christ and the gospel and how it's been applied in our lives. And then the third thing is, as we say goodbye, we entrust them to God's care. At that point, we just have to let go. We can no longer insert ourselves into our lives. We can't call or write or whatever. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We just say goodbye, and we entrust them into God's care. Of course, if we get to see them and we get to write to them again, that's wonderful. It, it keeps up the relationship. But even if we don't, the relationship is still there. And we entrust them to God's care. This is a process that we all go through in our lives. And that's why I wanted to take this particular slant with this last chapter. We could have stressed some of these doctrinal things a little bit more. But what I really wanted to stress is that as we walk through life, 
we're going to have to learn how to say goodbye. It's hard enough to make friends. It's hard enough to come close to people. It's even much harder to turn loose of them if we need to. It's a process we all go through. We're in a very mobile society. People move away. Things happen. Hobbies change. Interests change. Sets of friends change. How in the world do you say goodbye? Well, we keep those three things in mind. Acknowledge their importance. Remind them of the important truths of life. And trust them to God's care. And we have to say goodbye. And I would call it the irony of it all is it's easy to tell some people goodbye. They don't mean a whole lot to us. They didn't, we didn't mean a lot to them. Goodbye. See you later. But in close personal relationships, it's so hard. It is so wrenching at our hearts to say goodbye when you love each other. And God has done great things among you. But it, it happens. There are times where we do need to say goodbye. They're the hardest of all. And the reason that is, I've learned, is that when you love somebody, we're vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, we can get hurt. It's just it. So as a Christian, if you hadn't realized it by now, realize you're going to get hurt if you're loving other people in the name of Jesus Christ and you're developing relationships but it's okay. You entrust them to Christ. You entrust that relationship to Christ. And we move ahead to the next person or the next situation that God brings into our lives. Not only is it difficult, but it is also a comforting thing to remember that when we say goodbye to a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, we have the assurance that we will see them again. We might see them within the next few months or the next 10 years. We may never see again in this life, but we have the assurance as a brother and sister in Christ, we will see them again. And that takes a lot of the sting out of saying goodbye because we'll meet on the other side. We'll see them in heaven and we'll never have to say goodbye again. And I can't describe what's that like, but it's going to be good. We have the assurance that we will see them again, if not now, in eternity. And through it all, Paul concludes, the glory belongs to God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To the only wise, as verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. He's the one in charge. For those of you here, when we went through the Westminster Confession of Faith, I hope it stuck and you realized God's sovereign. He's in control. It's going to be all right, no matter what we're experiencing now. So that concludes the book of Romans. That's the last chapter and how Paul handles it. And <clears throat> what him? What him? Well, it's going to be familiar to some of you. Uh, maybe very familiar, but again, I want to read just a little history to it. The hymn is, To God Be the Glory. It's a hymn which expresses glory to the Lord and which encourages us to give Him honor. 
The text was written by Fanny Crosby, remember from last week, a wonderful, gifted, blind hymn writer, 1820 to 1915. It was first published in the 1875 collection, Brightest and Best, also included in that collection, Where All the Way My Savior Leads Me, I Am Thine, O Lord, Savior, More Than Life to Me, and Christ Arose. However, To God Be the Glory was almost totally unknown in America until fairly recently, Ira Sankey sang it in the Dwight L. Moody evangelistic campaigns and he included it in his Sacred Songs and Solos, which was published in England and is still in use today. But after that, it faded from public use until Cliff Barrows was given a copy in 1954 and began to popularize it during the Billy Graham Crusades in London. Barrows was impressed with its strong message of praise and included it in a songbook being prepared for the services and used it in the crusade. The crowds responded so enthusiastically that he sang it nearly every night. Later, Graham and Barrows introduced the song in the U.S. for the first time at their national crusade. The crowd again responded well, so the song was adopted as one of the standards for future campaigns. Because of the influence of Billy Graham, the compilers of hymnals began including it in new publications, and thus it became widely popular. Students of Fanny Crosby's hymns point out that this song differs from many of her other hymns because it is not so much a personal testimony as many of her others are, but rather contains more of a theological message to it. Carl Dahl noted that this is a remarkably objective celebration of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his Son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Let's pray. There is no possible way we can express our thanks to you to the degree it should be. We are limited by time and space and our own mortality, but we do give you great praise, Almighty God, Creator God, Adopted Father, Brother Jesus Christ, Fellow Traveler Holy Spirit. We thank you for what you have done for us, regardless of our backgrounds, in spite of our backgrounds. You have loved us with an everlasting love, and you have called us your own through the blood of Jesus Christ and our submission to him and him alone as Lord and God. We ask, Father, that as we continue our walk in life, when we do have to say goodbye to someone we really care about, 
You will give us the strength and the wisdom to do it correctly, and they will always be aware that even as they part, we are never alone. There are others you will bring and have brought into our lives, and even if that were not to happen, your Spirit is within us to guide us and care for us until we meet you again. So, Lord, help us to live our lives in a way that honors you, to be able to say hello and to be able to say goodbye and trust in you for both. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.